So why do we make such a big deal about Easter? I mean, we, we spend months preparing for this. We, you know, do more for this service than any other service in the year and uh, make a big deal about it as Christians. What's this all about? Well, it's about God fulfilling his most important promise, right? It's about God providing a savior as he promised, providing a way of forgiveness and eternal salvation to his people as he promised. This promise, of course, was first made in eternity past before any humans ever existed. But then the first human ears to hear this promise were Adam and Eve, just a short while after they had sinned, a promise to provide a Savior, one who could forgive sins and pave their way back to God, reconcile them into their intended relationship with their Creator. Fast forward 4,000 years or so and we have an angel that appears to a Jewish young man minding his own business who was engaged to a Jewish young woman named Mary. And the angel announced this to Joseph, Matthew 121. Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. This heavenly messenger announced that God was about to fulfill his promise. God was about to personally enter human history as the savior of mankind for us. After living a sinless life for about 30 years, Jesus entered full-time ministry, and Luke said this about him. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. This is why he came. To save us, the lost, to fulfill the promise of God that was made before eternity, that was made to all the people of the Old Testament, many times in many different places as the author of Hebrews tells us. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ in order to secure the forgiveness of our sins and provide eternal salvation for our souls. How was God going to do this? Well, he didn't. Jesus didn't come to provide a good example or to be a great teacher or mentor or even a miracle worker. He became a man with the sole objective to save us from the effects and consequences of sin. And how was he going to do that? How was the arrival of God on this planet, Jesus Christ, going to save us from the effects and consequences of sin? This is what Easter is about. This is what I'm going to share with you today. First of all, I want to share with you a quick four-step plan, God's plan that's revealed in all of Scripture to help you understand the direction I'm going but there's four parts to this plan. First was this, to become a human so that he could legitimately represent us as a human race. That was the first thing that God had to accomplish, to become one of us. Secondly, his perfect plan included the crucial axis point of all existence, the death of that one, the death of the promised Savior, the death of Jesus Christ. So if you think of, if you think of human existence as a globe, the center of that globe is the death of Jesus Christ. That's the axis on, on which all our hopes are pinned. He came to die. Although he didn't deserve death because he was sinless, he died nonetheless in order to satisfy God's requirement of a perfect sinless sacrifice to take away sin. That's the only way it would work through sacrifice. 
since Jesus is the infinite God, the creator of all things, his shed blood was of infinite value, of infinite power to accomplish his perfect plan to fulfill his promise. Jesus' blood was capable of all of that. The third element of this plan of God was to see if it worked. Of course, God knew it would work, but there was a waiting period for us on the receiving end to determine whether or not it would work. Was God the Father going to accept the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross? Was Jesus' death sufficient to cover all the sins of all people, including my horrendous sin? And how are we going to know if it worked? This is where the resurrection comes into focus. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. When Jesus closed his eyes on death on Calvary, he was completely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead. And that's exactly what took place. Listen to what Peter, how or how Peter describes this. Through Jesus we are believers in God who raised him from the dead. Who raised him from the dead? God, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit raised Jesus, the man, the God-man from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God. You remember Paul's discussion on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15? Remember what he said about resurrection? If Christ was not raised, what? Your faith is in vain. Christ must have been raised in order for our faith to be worthwhile. The point is this. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead proves that he accepted the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It was acceptable to him, the perfect God of all creation. It worked. What this means is that Jesus conquered sin on Calvary and he conquered death by rising from the grave. The final element of God's plan of forgiveness and salvation is the necessity of our receiving Jesus' work by faith. And I'm going to explain to you how this happens today. If you're a regular attender of Sun Valley Church, you hear this often. I'm going to repeat it for you again today. And this is where we're going to jump back into our passage of the day and complete today our eighth month study of the book of James. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I want you to open it with me and turn to James chapter 5. And I'm going to read for you verses 19 and 20, the last two verses of this short epistle. And I'm going to do my best to apply them to Easter. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. By the the way, next week we'll get back into Psalm 119, pick up in verse 57 where we left off, and march down that road for a year or so. But today we're finishing James. My brothers, James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And you think, now, how are you going to get Easter out of that? Well, let me try. What we can immediately see here, right, is that Christians, as Christians, we are to be involved in the retrieval of wandering people, right? Do you see that in those two verses? We're to be involved in the retrieval of spiritually wandering people. So let's look at who those folks are. How do we know who they are? What are the signs? Well, James gives them to us here in these two verses. 
There are two identifying marks of wanderers in these verses. The first is this. They wander from the truth. Do you see that there in verse 19? They wander from the truth. What is wandering? Well, wandering can be a gradual drift away from the truth, just like a boat might gradually drift away from the dock if it's not tethered. But these that wander spiritually are, are drifting away from the truth, away from God. And it may even be imperceptible at first. But then they wake up and they're a mile away from the dock. This has been labeled as backsliding. You've probably heard that term before. But it can also include, this, this wandering can also include those who have truly never known God. Who have always been wandering their whole life since the day they were born. No interest in God. Wandering away from their creator like everybody else. So wandering is a dangerous condition that we can see here. And I'll, I'll demonstrate that in a minute. But the point that I want to make here is that it's possible for any one of us to be wanderers. Whether we have known Christ or know him or, or never have known him. Notice how James addresses these people. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you, who is he writing to? A church. A group of people who profess Christ. If anyone among you, Sun Valley, the visible church, is wandering, these verses are for you, for me. It's a dangerous condition. It, you know that it's, of course, it's Satan's full-time job to get us to wander away from the truth. Think of before you knew Christ or, or those who you know that don't, know yet, don't yet know Christ. What, what's Satan up to in their lives? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that he blinds their eyes to the truth to cause them to wander aimlessly. This is Satan's effort, blinding the eyes of people so they can't see the truth, even if it's right before their eyes. And then for those of us who received Christ, those of us accepted his work for ourselves through the, the uh, gracious work of, and merciful work of God, the Holy Spirit, even after we have received the gift of, of salvation, Satan continue his work to undermine our faith, to deceive us by many tricks. We've all been experienced in this. So unless we remain close to the truth, tethered to the dock, so to speak, we will drift. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, well, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, the gospel particularly, why? So that we don't drift from it. So that we won't drift away. The truth that's in focus here is referring to the Word of God. This is what Jesus said in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, right? Sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth, is what Jesus prayed to his Heavenly Father. And so a sure sign of a wanderer is rejection of and the ignoring of the truth, biblical truth, gospel truth, divine truth. Most people who wander or are caught in sin are usually quick to defend themselves by telling us not to be judgmental. It really isn't any of your business or letting us know that they understand the Bible differently than we do and this is acceptable. But what James here, first of all, identifies the wanderer with someone who wanders from the truth. Secondly, he identifies them as those who drift into sin. Look at verse 20. He calls it saving those who are under a multitude of sins. Saving those folks. 
They've drifted into a multitude of sins. Ignoring or rejecting truth always leads to ungodly living. And so we can identify those who are wandering in our lives by seeing those who've wandered from the truth, those who are trapped in sin and living there. In my experience as a pastor, the reason people begin to reject the truth is because they, they have developed some sinful habits and prefer certain lifestyles that are in conflict with what the Bible says. So they drift away from what the Bible says. They drift away from the truth because the truth is uncomfortable to those who are living in sin. Don't you think? Certainly. That's why they begin to reject it. And so if you favor a particular sin, you're not going to like what God says about it. And at that moment, you have a choice to make, either to agree with God or to reject the revelation of his truth. Those are the only two options. Those who are wandering yet claim Jesus must deal with the words of Jesus in Luke 6. He said this, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He says, really? You're calling me Lord and yet you're not going to do what I say? James summarizes the evidence here of who's wandering by using the word sinner in verse 20. He calls them just sinners. Now, you theologians in the room might realize, hey, wait a minute, we're all sinners. Yes, but James isn't talking about the, the original human condition. James is talking about those who don't know Christ. In fact, every time the Bible uses the word sinner to describe a person or a group of people, it describes those who don't know God. Sinners, for example, and they're all over the place, but let me give you an Old and New Testament example. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. Referring to that person who doesn't know Christ or those people who don't know Jesus, who don't know God. And then Jesus said in Matthew 9, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, those who don't know me. So when the Bible identifies someone as a sinner, it simply means that person without Christ. Genuine Christians, of course, sin. We all know that. Uh, you may have experienced it already this morning. But genuine Christians actually sin. It's just that their habitual, unbroken practice isn't that. They don't continue in that. It will not be the identifying mark of their lives. And so the signs are simply wandering away from the truth and drifting into multiple sins. What is the danger of this? James tells us why this is so dangerous. And the reason that we, you and I share Christ when given the opportunity, the reason why we invite our friends and family and neighbors to a church that exalts Christ when given the opportunity is the grave danger of wandering away from Christ, ignoring Jesus. There are two significant dangers in the verses that James gives us. And the first is soul death. Soul death. You see that there? Let him know the wrongdoer brings the sinner back from his wandering will save his soul from death. So a danger, obviously, is soul death. What does that mean? Soul death is, of course, far worse than physical death. Soul death is what eventually happens to those who have rejected Jesus and his truth. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Yes, and that's not physical death referring to that. We all have physical death. The Bible calls this a second death. 
Soul death is the separation of the soul from all that is good, all that is life, all that is God. Soul death is the most terrifying condition that there is. That's the danger of wandering, soul death. What's another danger? Well, based on the fact that they're covered with a multitude of sins, I've just identified it as destructive sins. When someone has a multitude of sins in their life that they're dealing with, there is certainly a multitude of sorrows that accompany those sins. I think you've probably experienced this, haven't you? If you find yourself, you know, cool towards your relationship with God, a little bit drifting off dock, so to speak, are your joys and sorrows different? Do you have more sorrows than normal? I would say yes, at least in my experience. Now, let me, let me point something out here that I think is elementary but necessary. God forbids, forbids sin not because he's opposed to our happiness, but because he's committed to our happiness. You hear that? God is opposed to sin not because he's opposed to your happiness and my happiness. He is opposed to anything that gets in the way of our happiness, which is sin. Sin disrupts, sin destroys it's destructive. It does the opposite of bring joy and happiness and fulfillment. And so God's opposed to that, which is why he says, thou shalt not. Because if thou do, this is the result. Destruction. And everything that follows. You see, sin corrupts everything it touches. It creates disorder, dysfunction. And God opposes it because sin leads to the disruption of his intended purpose for you and me. Jesus in John 10, you all know this verse, right? I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. That's why he came. This is why Jesus came to earth, that we might have abundant life, joyful life, happy life. And sin interrupts that. So God hates it. God commands us to avoid it. Now, the question is, how many sins does it take to cause us problems with God? Five? Ten? Five hundred? A thousand? How many sins until you're in trouble with God? Those of you who have read James would know the answer. One. Right? We're all in trouble with God. This is what James said in chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law... You've done a great job, but you failed in one point. Guess what? You're guilty of all of it. Just take one. So if one sin will sink the ship, what will the multitude do? James is pointing out the hopelessness and the sad condition of the one committed to a life of multiple sin. When I was in high school, we lived in Horse Creek, California, and our home was heated with firewood. Every year we had to go out and gather wood, chainsaw it into the lengths that would fit into the fireplace, split the wood by hand, and then fill the truck. And if you take one piece at a time, what happens? An all-day job happens. So what do, you, what do smart teenagers do? They load up each other's arms. Me and my younger brother load each other's arms up so you couldn't see each other's faces and then stagger to the truck. We soon figured out that that was slower than actually taking one piece at a time. We got smart enough to figure out exactly how many we could carry, but 
Carrying a multitude of sins works the same way. When people will pile sin upon sin in their lives, it becomes debilitating. They can't even walk straight, much less function. How about our next point? The retriever of the wandering. Who's supposed to go get these folks, these wanderers? Well, let me ask you a few questions. Who loves the wanderers in your life? Your pastor? Who doesn't know them? Your small group leader? Who's never met them? Who loves the wanderer in your life? We all have them. Do we care that they're drifting towards soul death and ruined lives? If so, you must become a retriever. So who are the retrievers in these verses here in James 5? The first is faithful Christians. My brothers. He's talking to those who know Christ. Do you know Jesus? James wants those of us who love Christ to view themselves as retrievers, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5.18. Listen, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So when you come to know Christ, you receive his offer of forgiveness in Christ, you are experiencing his mercy and grace, guess what your first job is? Be a retriever. You now become a retriever. We become God's retrievers. As Jesus told Peter, the fisherman, that if Peter would simply follow him, Jesus would make him a fisher of men. Jesus was going to turn him into a retriever. James and James's encouragement to those of us who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ is that we should go and retrieve those who are out there wandering aimlessly away from God, away from his truth, away from his son. Be a retriever. Do you know anyone who has claimed Christ in the past but is now living for themselves with no interest in God or his kingdom? You know someone like that? Here's a command directly from God. Go get them. How do we do that? How do we go get these people? How can we be fishers of men? How can we be retrievers? Whether they're wandering because they've never known Christ or wandering because they've ignored the truth for a time, we are to be retrievers in their lives. We are not just to acknowledge that someone has wandered from the truth and wish they hadn't. Man, I wish that wouldn't have happened. No, we're to do something about it. In verses 13 through 18, we learned last week that we're to pray, first of all. Pray about it. Three different ways to pray about wanderers. In verses 13 through 18. And here we're, James finishes his book telling us to go after them. Not only pray, but go get them. The way Jesus went after the lost sheep. You remember that story? Let me read it for you in case you don't remember the details. This is not on the overhead, so just follow and listen. Luke 15, 1 through 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to hear him rather, near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling. They didn't like the fact that Jesus was out there hanging out with sinners, those bad people. Right? They said, this man, speaking of Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. Man, look at him, spending time with bad folks. 
So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Who's not going to do this? Jesus said, this makes perfect sense and you all do it. And when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, now listen closely, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who don't need to. Friends, bringing a sinner back to God is cause for great joy, not only here on this planet, but more so in heaven. This is what makes God happy. Angels dance over this thing. So, here's some practical things that will help you be a better retriever. One, love. It says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Have you heard that phrase before in the New Testament? Covering a multitude of sins? Yeah, Peter used it in 1 Peter 4.8. And he said, love covers a multitude of sins. It's the loving thing to do to warn a friend to stay away from the cliff. It's the loving thing to rescue someone caught in fire. Love. Do you love the people in your life who are wandering? Secondly, integrity. And I need to be careful here because this produces all sorts of, of excuses from Christians. If we want to help retrieve people from sin, we must not be stuck in sin ourselves. And everybody goes, whew, I'm a sinner, so I can't go do that. You just said so. Well, let me think about it for a little bit. Jesus said, before you go tell someone about the splinter in their eye, remove the log that's in your own. All right? He didn't say... If you have some wood in your eye, you're, you don't have to do this. He says, remove the wood and then go do it. We're not exempt because we're sinners. We simply have to do house cleaning before we go. We must have integrity. Third, prayer. As I just mentioned, James 5, 13 through 18 talks about prayer being the thing that is used to rescue folks. Retrieve them. And, and notice it's prayer, not gossip or prayer requests. It's actual prayer. I have a prayer request. That's always, that's always puts my antenna up when I hear that. Oh, Pastor John, I got a prayer request. Okay. Especially if it's about someone else. I got a prayer request. He says, pray, don't gossip. Talk to God about it, not to your neighbor. Next, well, I've already mentioned this a little bit. Love motivated confrontation. Everybody goes, I hate confrontation. Well, if you like confrontation, something's wrong with you. None of us like confrontation. But love does something to us. It, it, it forces that loving confrontation because we love them more than we hate the discomfort of confrontation. And so we do. 
Paul in his letter to 2 Thessalonians 3.15 says, Warned them, sternly warned them who were drifting. And then for those who claim to be Christians and, and are yet wandering, we have to finally be willing to include the church. Matthew chapter 18. Apply the pressure of the church to that person who claims Christ. And by the way, church discipline doesn't begin and end with us exposing some person's sin from the stage. Church discipline begins in your home when you talk to your children or when your wife talks to you about your attitude. That's where church discipline begins. If a brother has sinned and you point it out to him, they turn, you've won a brother. That, that, that should be happening daily in our lives, right? So, friends, when we decide to follow Jesus, we take up his interests. And one of his primary interests is this, retrieving. Retrieving. Going after wandering folk. This leads us to the heavenly retriever who the Puritans used to call the hound of heaven. If he, gets on your, if he gets on your scent, you might as well give in now. The great hound of heaven. Again, Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came, God the Father became man, and he showed up on this planet. Why? To seek and save the lost, to retrieve. That's why he came. Retrieve you, retrieve me, retrieve folks. Jesus is the great heavenly retriever. He came from heaven to live, die, rise from the dead. This is why we celebrate Easter. This is the plan of God. This is working. Finally, what's the objective of retrieving that James points out? Why are we doing this? Well, let me ask some other questions that I think will pinpoint this for you. Do you ever wonder why James has been so hard on us in the past eight months? Come on, Pastor James. I thought pastors, at least pastors, are supposed to be loving and kind and gentle. And you've been working us over with a stick. I know some of you have felt that way through this sermon series. Where's the love, James? James? Do you wonder why James hasn't pulled punches in this letter? Verse 20 tells us why. He concludes his letter with his defense of his boldness. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering has saved his soul from death. That's worth being confrontive about. That's worth being honest about. Saving someone's soul from death, there's nothing more important it legitimizes this confrontation that we've been experiencing for eight months. To bring us back. To bring the sinner back. Bring them back where? Back to church? Maybe. But that's not bringing him back point. I mean, you can come back to church and still be miles from God. So bring them back where? Bring them back to God. Go get them and bring them back here. 
One of the greatest frustrations to owning a retriever dog is if they go get the ball or go get the duck and then take it under a bush and chew on it. You go, no, bring it here. You know, and then you throw it again and they go back over and chew on it. No, go get them. This is why they invented shock collars. Get that dog over here. You know, good retrievers bring the whatever to the owner. It's the same way, friends, in the spiritual world. Our job as good retrievers is to bring these folks back to the owner, the creator, the one who bought them at great price. The Bible makes it clear that retrieving must end with God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul said, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. Now listen, and how you turn to God from idols. You didn't turn to the church. You didn't turn to service. You didn't turn to being a good boy. You turned to being to God. That's where you turn to, to him. Peter says something similar. For you were straying like sheep. This is what sheep do. They stray. You were straying just like them, but have now done what? Return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You return to God. So as retrievers, we bring back wandering souls to God, their creator, their owner. This is so important. James wrote in verse 20 that the retriever works to save the sinner's soul. We cooperate with God. We are used by God. We are an instrument in his, in his hands to accomplish, accomplish his objective of reconciliation. Four months after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, Desmond Doss joined the army out of what he thought was obligation. The only problem was that Desmond Doss was a conscientious objector. He not only wouldn't carry a, a, a rifle in battle, he wouldn't even train with a rifle. And he was the laughing stock of his brigade. So, how are we going to use this guy? He won't fight, he won't shoot, he won't do anything. Some guy had a great idea, let's make him a medic. And so he became a medic. Many of you have heard this story. In the Battle of Okinawa in May 1945 on Hacksaw Ridge, <clears throat> Desmond Doss risked his life in order to retrieve or save 75 wounded soldiers by himself. He would run out into the battlefield, pick up a wounded soldier, similar to how Christ's parable of picking up the sheep, and put them on his shoulder and take them back to the edge of a cliff, stabilize them medically, and then personally lower them by a rope to safety, and then run back out and get another one. In this process, he received a fractured arm from sniper fire and 17 pieces of metal shrapnel in his body. Das was the only conscientious objector in World War II to receive the Medal of Honor. And only three have ever earned that honor. The Medal of Honor to conscientious objectors. This is a great picture of what our retrieving ought to look like, don't you think? The Christian life is warfare. And as in any war, there are injuries and casualties. We, we can't be those who just sit back at home in the comfort of our warm living room and read the reports and say, oh man, it's terrible out there. 
No, we must be like Desmond Doss, who tirelessly pursued the wounded, even at the expense of pains and difficulties. As James comes now to the close of this letter, he has one last evangelistic appeal for his readers. In these verses, James is calling on genuine believers to go after their unsaved friends and family members. Easter requires this of us, friends. James is requiring this of us. Jesus is requiring this of us. You are retrievers. That's your first job. Everything else is secondary. Well, I don't have the gift. You don't have the need a gift. You need a command, and it's been given. You're a retriever. I'm a retriever. We all have connections to many in the church and outside the church that lack genuine saving faith. Retrieve them. Maybe you're here today because the great heavenly retriever is after you personally. Maybe you're the one being retrieved. Have you confessed your sin? Have you acknowledged that you're a sinner? Realized that there's an issue between you and God? Have you confessed that to him? Have you asked for his forgiveness? Do you want to have the burden of guilt cut from your back? Do you desire to be forgiven and look forward to a blissful, joyful eternity with God in heaven forever? Maybe you're the one being retrieved this morning. You ever think of that? Could possibly be. Maybe the Holy Spirit, the great hound of heaven, the heavenly retriever, has got you in his grip and you don't even know it. But you are here. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and mercy and love as shown in Christ Jesus. Thank you for accepting his work on Calvary on our behalf as you raised him from the dead. Thank you for a risen Lord, an alive Savior, one who is now living in heaven praying for us that we might walk faithfully with God. Father, I pray that you would use the words from James's pen so many years ago to have an impact on how we live the rest of today and tomorrow, maybe even the rest of our lives. God, do your work in us. Holy Spirit, grant mercy. We pray this in the name of our Heavenly Father, His Son, our Great Retriever. Amen.